Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for your continued revelation um, through your word. Thank you, God, that you have not stopped speaking, but that you continue to speak. Every time we open up your text, we hear your voice. And we ask, Lord, tonight that as we continue to seek your face and to study, that you would open up our hearts as well as when we open up your book, our hearts, our minds, our souls, our eyes, our ears, all of our senses would be open to you and open to your amazing presence here in our midst. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, welcome to our Exodus series. We're so glad you're all here. We want to let you know that part of what we do here at Spark is we like to ask a lot of questions. We like to wrestle with the text. We believe God is big enough to do that. He's big enough. He doesn't really need the practice, the wrestling practice, but the rest of us do. And, um, and he sort of bends to us so that we can start to wrestle and to ask those deep questions. Um, I do have a friend who, who talks about how he's heard amongst the rabbis a saying where um, if you come to a problem or a question that you cannot solve, you just dance. And the reason why you dance is because you just discovered that God is bigger than you are. Woohoo! So hopefully we'll do some dancing tonight, um, and we'll continue to dance throughout the rest of the week, and we'll embrace the mystery. And simply because we ask a question does not mean that we don't have faith, that we don't trust God. In fact, the, ab- the opposite of faith is certainty, is it not? So our faith means that we wrestle and we ask and we engage with a loving God who is present and available for our questions. So to that, if you have questions about Exodus, um, we are going to be giving you space and time as we go through um, at the end of tonight's sermon um, to be able to ask those. So feel free to jot a note or a mental note or whatever you would like to do, and I'd be happy to um, tell you I don't know at the answer. So. Okay. Um, Our message tonight is entitled, God Hears. And our text comes from Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. You'll be happy to know that it only took us three weeks to get through Exodus chapter 2. So we're on a breakneck speed to finish Exodus, you know, before Jesus comes. So it'll it'll be fine. And we're just going to hang out with these couple verses tonight. And these are them. Let's read. And it happened when a long time had passed that the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites groaned from the bondage and cried out. And their plea from the bondage went up to God. And God heard their moaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew. That's the end of our passage. I'm just going to sit down now and let you all wrestle with all of that. Yes. This passage is fascinating to me. It's actually one of my favorite passages in the Bible. So I got to wrestle Kevin over who got to preach this week. So I, I, I nailed this one down several months ago. The reason why I like it is because the people cry out. And I need to believe in a God that hears our cries. So when they're crying out, why are they crying out? Well, we know that they're crying out because their slavery is bad, because things are very difficult, because they are in pain, But we also know at the very beginning of this passage, it starts like this, and it happened when a long time had passed that the king of Egypt died. What does it mean when a king dies? We live in a democracy where there's peace in the streets. When we pass power from one political party to another, or one president to another, or even one Congress, or Republican, I mean, 
peace-ish, right? No, we have got peace, right? <laughs> Nobody is rioting. They might be saying nasty things to one another on certain news programs, but we're not afraid that there's not going to be bread in the, in the stores or that we won't have water as a result of some sort of regime change. But this has not always been the case, not always the case for persons that founded the United States, right? They were leaving a regime because they needed to get out of that regime and the, the oppression that was happening there. And actually, those early founding fathers and mothers who came and, and founded the United States, they believed and, and identified themselves with Israel. It's quite fascinating because they saw the same oppression and they were going to cross a body of water and Israelites crossed a body of water. They identified what they were fleeing from as their personal Egypt. Well, in, in the Israelites' period of time, when a king would change power, in the Egyptian period, there was still a lot of peace in that community, but a lot of times, the leaving of a king meant that debts were forgiven, that people were set free. And in fact, an extant hymn composed in honor of the accession of Ramses IV illustrates this custom. It says that there was a happy day for Egypt when fugitives returned to their towns and when those in hiding emerged and those in prison were freed. So perhaps the Israelites had an expectation that once this king would die, dear God, please let him die, we'll finally maybe have some freedom. So there will be a party. There were lots of kings that employed this practice. And in fact, it seems that even Moses benefited from this, because we'll get to Exodus chapter 4, and we'll see that it said Moses came back to the land after he had murdered a guy, but he came back because the king didn't know him, had forgotten about him. It was, it was all gone. That, that which was holding Moses back from being able to enter back to the land was, was somehow gone with that last knowledge. And so kings and their regime changes could bring hope. But for the Israelites, this regime change does not bring hope. And that was also true, by the way, in Jesus' day. When King Herod knew he was about to die, because he was literally rotting from the inside, he actually set out a decree that all these wonderful leaders should be brought to his area and they'd be executed upon his death. And the reason why he set that decree is because he knew that he was hated, that the people were going to celebrate and have a party when he died. And he wanted people to mourn. So he's like, well, I'll kill good people so that at least they'll be crying in the streets and they can associate it with my death. Fortunately, his brother and sister were like, let's not do that. And so that didn't happen. He was able to just die and rot, and that was a good thing. But these kings with power, they, we don't understand this because we don't live in this type of community and society, but it still exists even in the world that when different people come to power, it can be good news and bad news. So perhaps one of the reasons why the author here is telling us about this new king coming to power, but that that caused an additional cry out of the Israelites is because maybe there was still some hope that there would be a human solution to their oppression. Maybe there was some hope. Have you ever been in that situation where you're just like, okay, this boss is going to go, and I can't wait till they go. And then you say in the nice Christian voice, God bless him, right? <laughs> and you just can't wait till this person passes. But then you, as they move to their next position or they get that wonderful promotion out of the country that everybody in the office has been praying for, you're all kind of jockeying to see who's going to be next. And then you're like, no, no, no. No, right? Yeah, so you're like, not that, oh, that's going to be worse. This is what the Israelites are in the midst of. They're in a situation that's terrible, that's horrible, and they have a little bit of hope that it might change, and it doesn't. So let's go back to the text then. When it happened, a long time had passed that the king of Egypt died, but now the Israelites groan. 
And they groan from the bondage and they cry out and their plea, their cry from the bondage went up to God and God heard their moaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites and God knew. Now, I just want to point out this really beautiful, amazing thing that's happening in this passage. Notice the four types of crying that are going to be described that the Israelites are doing. They're groaning, they're crying, they're pleading, and they're moaning. And these four cries that are coming out are actually four different words in Hebrew. They're four synonyms for crying. Anacha, za'aka, shava, na'aka. And they're words for wordless cries. And even if you were to pronounce one like, za'aka! Right? How was that? was great. Let's do it again. That is a cry out. It's like a wordless cry. It's the cry that you make when you're starting to fall down a cliff, right? Zaka! And these are these cries that God is starting to hear. And we're going to know in just a moment that these four types of cries cause four responses from God. God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. These wordless cries out, God is starting to, he's going to start to pay attention. Now, I don't know if you've noticed so far in our study of Exodus chapter 1 and 2, but God has not played a prominent role yet in the book. In fact, he's only been mentioned really once, and it's been by the midwives. And it just says the midwives feared God, and then, you know, God blesses and rewards them. But it's not like God's like, and he's actively interested right now in what the Israelites are going through. He's been paying attention to the fact that they've had 400 years of slavery. He's paid attention to the fact that Moses, who apparently is going to be a deliverer, is not yet here, and he's 80 years old. Um, God, the delivery speed, right? It's not two-day Amazon Prime. We're waiting. We've been waiting. He's had 40 years before he's gotten kicked out of Egypt, and now it's been another 40 years. And they don't know this. It's not like this hang tight, Grandpa, just another 120 years, you know, and someday you too will be set free from oppression. No one knows the end of the story. And so they're just crying out, and their pain, their bondage, and the word here for bondage is the same word for work. And this word's going to take a very interesting um, connotation as we continue to go through the rest of the text. Let my people go so they may work for me. It's the same word. So their bondage, but this work that they're doing for Pharaoh is heavy, and it's bondage, and it's burdensome, and it's oppressive, and it's terrible, and it's horrible, and they are crying out in four different types of cries, wordless cries of pain, like just these cry outs to see if God or anyone will start to pay attention. Now that Hebrew word for za'aka is one of the most powerful words in the Hebrew language. And this is from the JPS Torah commentary. It says this. It says, pervaded by moral outrage and soul-stirring passion, it denotes the anguished cry of the oppressed, the agonized plea of a helpless victim. This is the cry that the people offer out. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but they're just crying out. Just crying out. Four different ways, just crying out. 
Why? Well, the Exodus story powerfully conveys the human experience of feeling abandoned by God. It's not just been 40 years of Moses out in the desert trying to figure out how to take care of sheep so he can figure out how to take care of people maybe someday, right? Or wandering around until he finds that burning bush. It's been 400 years. It's been a long period of enslavement. And they have suffered grinding, pulverizing, oppressive labor, senseless labor. They've lost their own babies to the river. And to know this world and life in this world would indeed feel like God himself was blind and uncaring and not present. Wouldn't you feel that way? If everywhere you looked, all the people that you loved, all of your entire people group was being oppressed in every way, crushed and pulverized by the hard labor, and the very life that you are bringing into the world, like the one bit of good news you have, a baby boy has been born, is now going to be tossed into the Nile and murdered. The Exodus story gives voice to the voiceless, to the oppressed, to those that only know to cry out. But the beautiful thing is that these four cries start to beckon redemption. That as the people say, cry out, and again, and again, and again, this is what triggers God's action. This is what triggers Movement, finally, for the first two chapters, we've heard nothing. God, do you care? Do you remember? Are your people there? And now these cries, these cries of the oppressed, these wordless cry out of pain, these cries are the ones that start our redemption. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but when I've cried out in pain, I haven't thought, ah, now's the start of redemption. I've thought, this just hurts, and I want it to stop. And I'm just crying out. But what the Exodus story is telling us is that their shriek of help is being transmuted into a prayer which is somehow rising up to God and it is expressing their very last hope on the face of this earth that there might be some availability for change. Our hope in that king and any regime change is gone. That hope is dashed. We have nothing left but to cry out. All we can do is cry. And trust that somehow in that crying, it's going to start to be a catalyst for redemption. And that's exactly what happens. It's because of those cries, or in the midst of those cries, that God decides to break silence. And he breaks silence like this. He hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. So let's just start looking through these four things that God starts to do. And I'm praying that as we do this, that those of us who have been in seasons where we have cried out or we are crying out to God or we're with a loved one that we want to cry out for or we're hearing their cries, that we would start to take some hope, some patience, some, some hope, some comfort in the fact that God's going to do four things. So what does it mean when it says that God hears? What does that mean? This is the best news I've ever heard because I don't always get to hear the cries of the oppressed. I live in Mountain View in a nice-ish home, right? The ones that Mount you can get in Mountain View. 
I am blessed to be in a place where I don't hear cries at night out in the street. But many of us have traveled or have lived in places where that is not the case, where the neighborhood is loud at night, where you can hear gunfire at night, where you can hear neighbors yelling and crying. Maybe it's even been in our own homes where we've heard that yelling and that crying. And to know that God hears that, that he takes notice, that he takes heed. And the word here for hear, to listen, is the same word for to obey, to take notice, to pay attention to. It's a single word in Hebrew, and it's the word shema, which is the first word of the number one commandment that God is going to give the Israelites. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Shema Israel. Listen, take notice, take heed. And this beautiful thing about this word is that it doesn't mean I have audibly heard you only. It means I am now going to take action. It's when your mother says to you, take out the garbage, And then five minutes later, you're still watching cartoons or on the television or whatever, and and she says, did you hear me? She's not asking, did you hear me say the words, take out the garbage, right? Because if you turn to mom at that point and said, I heard you, right, that's not going to go over well. (laughs) What? I heard you. Yeah, take out the garbage. I heard those words. No, she is saying, did you hear me? As in, did you get up and did you do it? Because I asked you to take out the garbage. And that's the word here in the biblical sense. So when it says that God hears, it's not only that he has gone, oh, I think there's some crying in the distance, and I've never heard that before. Fascinating. He is now going to hear and take notice and start to act. That's our first indication that God is on the move. Deuteronomy 26 gives voice to this as well. It says, the Israelites write, you know, we cried out to the Lord, to the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our plea, saw our plight, our misery, and our oppression. They note that God has heard them, and all these other action verbs are going to follow. And by the way, this passage is what you say when you go to the temple where where God's going to put his house in Jerusalem when you're bringing the offering of first fruits. So every time you're going to go bring that offering, you're going to say, hey, I remember crying out, we. Wait, wait, not you. You're not in Egypt. Now you're in the promised land and there's a temple. No, no. When we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, the Lord heard our plea, saw our plight, our misery, and our oppression. All of us are encouraged by our text to have heartfelt partnership and camaraderie with those that are oppressed. To consider ourselves also have been, having been oppressed and now being set free. When we go to worship, when we go to make that offering, we stand there and say, we cried. We cried out. And God heard our cry. And this is what we do when we come together. Even if we aren't the ones oppressed, we come and we say, we understand that people are oppressed and we will count ourselves among them. Now, that's one of the first things that happens when God hears, but then God does this great thing. He remembers. And at that point, I was so confused. It's like, why did God forget? Short-term memory? Like, is this some issue? Is he, you know, getting old and up in years? 
dementia setting in? Why is God forgetting? Of course, this is a weird word, right? How, do, how can God remember? It sounds like he's like, just, you know, about other business. Oh, stars. I've just been tweaking the stars for a while. It's kind of got lost and all that. Oh, shoot. 400 years have gone by. Darn, I totally forgot about those people. Just, the, uh, I remember. I'm supposed to get them out. Okay, let's go. No, no, the word remember in the Hebrew talks about this. This is from the Talmud, from Jew, Jew, Jewish writing, um, just after the time of Jesus. And a little bit. Looking upon, as God starts to hear and see them, leads to remembering, and remembering always leads to action. And in the Hebrew, the word for remember really means to take heart and to think upon and act. And we know this because God's going to say remember to us all the time. Remember you were slaves in Egypt. Be kind to the foreigner because remember you were foreigners. Be kind to those people because remember you. Remember you. Remember I said remember, remember, remember. Don't forget, remember. Keep Passover so you'll always remember. This is what we are to do. I actually heard one person talk about the very word in English of remember. It's to remember something right? It's that something has fallen apart and to pull it back together again. So God is, when we are to look and think of the body, we are to remember, remember the body of Christ and bring it back together. So God is remembering his people, and it's not a, oh, I should have had a V8 moment. He is sitting there and saying, ah, I am taking heart. I'm not just only hearing their cries. I am taking that into my heart, and I am taking note of it, and I will, that will now lead me to action. So when we hear that God remembers, this is good news. Even if the only thing we can hear in the air is the echo of the one that's cried out, we can take comfort in the fact that God is hearing and he is remembering. Next, the text tells us that God sees that he actually sees. Now, these are all anthropomorphic terms, right? These are human terms that we're placing on a God without any form. But we don't have any other language, do we? And if somebody's got some extra, like, language to explain the mystery of God, this is where we're all going to dance, okay? But we're not, I'm not suggesting that God has actual eyes and that he's like the cartoon God sitting on a throne and then now is looking down and seeing something, right? But he is perceiving it. He's taking note of it with the full senses of all that God has. And I desperately want and need a God that sees. I need a God that sees what is happening in this world. There's a story that Gary Haugen, of, he's the founder of the International Justice Mission of IJAM, and he tells this amazing story in his, one of his books, Terrify No More, of this young girl that was sold ultimately by a family member that had not been honest. They had told her and her family that she was going to go work in a bakery, and instead they sold her into a brothel. And as she was sold and she figures out what's happening, she refuses she says, absolutely not. I'm not going to do this. And everyone's ridiculing her and making fun of her. Of course you're going to do it. You're going to be just like the rest of us. You're locked into this prison cell, this brothel. And she, uh, she was a young girl, a Christian girl, around 12, 13 years old, Elizabeth. And she says, God sees me. 
And she writes this on the wall of her cell, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. And in the cell of her brothel, after resisting for as long as she could, they've now starved her and beaten her and drugged her, and she's now starting to have to take her first clients, 8 15 plus a day. She writes this psalm on the wall of her cell. And she continues to tell the other girls that are there that God is going to rescue her, that God sees her. And I desperately need a God that sees. Because I'm not in that dark cell with that little girl, but that little girl needs somebody there. And within a year, before the year was up, International Justice Mission launched a raid and rescued her. And they saw that psalm written on the wall of her cell as they pulled her out. And she said, I knew you were coming. I need to believe in a God who sees her. A God who pays attention, who hears, who remembers, who sees and says, I will send somebody to act. And we can get discouraged with stories like that or we can choose hope in the midst of stories like that. We can say, oh my gosh, that's so terrible and so horrible. And yes, it is. It's depraved. It's indescribable. We have no words for this type of pain. But God saw. And he always sees. And in this case, there were people that loved God that were about rescue. And they started to put a plan into place to bring rescue. I believe that there is comfort in even knowing that God sees those that aren't rescued. That he right now is with persons in those dark places and that he is seeing. He sees. He pays attention and he sees and he takes note. And maybe he's looking to the rest of us to partner with him in that action. It's why one of our five values here at Spark is rescue. We believe in a God of rescue, and we believe he's looking for partners in that rescue in this world. And we want to be those people. Now, the, one of the last portions that this passage tells us, it says, God knows. God knows. This is a really interesting, fascinating little phrase at the end of this verse. Because the word know appears in Exodus over 20 times in the first 14 chapters alone. This phrasing to know is going to take, again, a huge theme going on and pushing through into the text. But interestingly enough, as we look at this passage, we have to start a question immediately. Know what? What is it that God knows? Because the passage doesn't tell us. It's an objectless verb. It is simply says God knows. That's all it says. What does he know? What does he know? Exodus chapter 3 might have a clue. The Lord said, in Exodus chapter 3 verse 7, the Lord says to Moses at the burning bush, 
I have indeed seen the misery of my people. He starts to use these same phrasings, again, that we're just talking about. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I know what? Now we have an object, their pain. Not in the way that President Clinton knew pain, right? I feel your pain, anybody? Am I the only child from the 90s, right? I feel your pain. That's my best Clinton impression. That's all I got. That's all I got. It's not an insincere, and I'm not suggesting he's insincere. I'm just saying it's not just words. That in our pain, it's precisely there where God situates himself. He knows our pain. This is not a mental knowing. He knows it. The pain is not transcended, but now that pain somehow is shared with the God of the universe, that God knows. He knows, and God is now intimately involved in the moment of pain. He knows the pain. You see, this word know is so phenomenal in the Hebrew. Because in Hebrew, the word to know is that knowledge is not just essentially or even primarily rooted in intellect or mental activity. I know it, and I have thought about it, and I've intellectually taken that information in and brought it into myself, right? I know it. But in the Hebrew, in the biblical period, to know is much more experiential. It's not only that mental ascent, but it's experiential. It's embedded in emotions. It encompasses qualities as contact, like actual physical contact, intimacy, concern, relatedness, and mutuality. In fact, when we want to talk about, your NIV will say, like, and Adam slept with Eve, but the word there in the Hebrew is, and Adam knew Eve. In the biblical sense, to know. And today in modern Hebrew, if I'm in Israel, if I use that verb to say I know somebody, people will look at me like I'm a little weird. I have to use a different word when I'm talking about knowing somebody versus like that, but I know them, I know you in the biblical sense. We don't have that in English. Like we use the same word for all of it. But in Hebrew, it's a little bit different. So when God says, when the text says, and God knew, that is powerful. That is, and God now knows. He's taking that pain, taking that moment of suffering, and he's becoming connected with it. He is not just empathizing, he is meeting us in it. He is sharing that pain. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because we believe in a God that takes on our pain, our suffering. We believe in a suffering Messiah. So why would we be at all surprised to find out that God, oh, I don't know, is indeed the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that he has been in these moments with us, with our pain, sitting with us, and he knows. He knows. He knows. So what do you think God knows and doesn't matter? Is it important that God knows how bad the slavery is? Is it important that God knows um, how mean people are or how desperately they're praying or how horrible the pain is? Is it important that he's knowing the covenant? Is it, what, is it important that he now knows what the plan is for rescue? What is it? Is it maybe one of the most beautiful things is that it is an objectless verb and it's good enough to just know that God knows? Isn't it just good to know that he knows? So that when we are in those deep, 
retching, za'aka, cry out pain moments, where we have no words for the pain that's so deep. We sit in this comfort at least knowing that God knows. God knows. And he's with us in it. He's sharing the experience with us, and he knows. He knows. God knows. And what's really fascinating about this is that to not know means the opposite. So to not know is synonymous with disassociation, with indifference, with alienation and estrangement, culminating in callous disregard. So when we choose to not know, We are choosing to remove ourselves from that situation. Remember in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, it says, a new Pharaoh came to power who did not know Joseph. That doesn't just mean he just doesn't know he, oh, Joseph, I don't have that in my Rolodex. I don't know who he is. Okay, we'll just treat him terrible, right? Instead, it is, I am indifferent to him. I am not associated with him. And I will actually have callous disregard for Joseph and any of his descendants. We have a God that chooses to know, that chooses to sit with us and say, I know, I know. And I think as we are all striving to be more Jesus-like in our communities, then we also need to strive to be people that know. And this doesn't just mean, oh, wow, that's pretty tough, yeah, terrible, I know, I know that's hard. It means to enter in. Enter into that suffering with somebody. Sit down with somebody. Have a moment with someone. Put your arm around them and try to truly know what it is that they are going through, what it is that they are suffering from. In the midst of all of that, I have some incredibly great news. We don't have to get it right. Because this amazing portion of this text simply says that the Israelites cried out. They cried, they pleaded, they they moaned, they groaned, they cried, they pleaded, right? All of these things. They just cried out. Not once does it say that they cried out to God. Isn't that amazing? Because I've heard sermons. I don't think I've preached them, but it's possible. But I've been pastor for 20 years. I probably said a lot of things I'd regret today, but hopefully not right now. Maybe later we'll edit it out, right? So... As we, that's the wrestling part, everyone wrestle and ask the questions. I've heard sermons like, well, you know, when you pray, you have to say, Jesus Christ, Son of, you know, you have to get the words right. Like, when you pray, you have to make sure that you, did you pray in the name of Jesus? Did you pray in the name by the blood of Jesus? Did you pray in the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of the blood of the Jesus of the, right? Anyone? Anyone had the, like, okay, but, you know, did you bind, and did you loose, and did you rebuke, and did you do it, but you had to, did you say it, and then did you say presently, or did you say it in the third dimension, and the fourth dimension's time? Did you bind in the time? Did you bind in fourth dimension of time? Because if you didn't, then, then that demon is not going to be cast out. Like, there's not, I mean, no freedom from your oppression, because you didn't, oh, see, you know, it must be because you didn't say it in that, right? And it becomes like some weird incantation, some secret rules, and people pulling, like, oh, but I went to this one conference that said you had to stand like, like this when you did the healing, right? And then you smack, right? Like, we start to hear these, but did you say it this way? All well-intentioned, but here's this great news. Are you ready? They just cried out. And they did not know his name. God's going to reveal that to Moses next chapter. Come back next week. You don't know it yet. 
They just cry out. And we have a God who cares so deeply about humanity, who cares so deeply about suffering, who cares so deeply about pain and injustice and oppression. We have a God who cares so deeply about that that all we have to do is simply cry out. And he hears. And he remembers. And he sees. And he knows. And that's it. Because ultimately, God's response is not dependent upon us. Amen? It's not dependent upon us getting it all right. It's dependent upon God, his character, his love. And when we don't know his name, when we can no longer utter words, but we can only sob and cry. Anyone had that gut-wrenching cry where all of a sudden you're like, I get why the psalmist's couch was drenched with tears. That wasn't melodramatic. That's a real thing that can happen. That gut-wrenching cry where you can't speak anymore, where you, right? This cry. When you can't even say the words, God hears us cry. When we don't, we just need the pain to end. We don't know anything else. When even if you no longer want his name on your lips because you're angry, you're confused, you're trying to figure out what kind of God would leave you for 400 years, what kind of God would watch baby boys being thrown into the Nile, what kind of God does this, when even in those moments you think to yourself, I can't, I don't know if I can even pray to him right now. I'm so hurt. I'm so angry. We still can cry out and we still have a God who hears because he deeply and desperately loves and he is deeply and desperately faithful. God hears. God hears and he knows. He knows. God knows. 72% of your psalms in your psalm book, plus, 70 plus percent, are psalms of lament. The book of Job, lament. Lament throughout our text, and yet we don't always allow there to be lament here. Even when, and I, you, you're all so dear and sweet, and I'll sit down, we'll have a pastoral counseling session, and you'll say, well, this is just really hard, and it's that gut-wrenching, terrible cry, and I'm like, oh my goodness, that's like the worst story I've ever heard that's so terrible. And then we all, all of us Christians, make, but, but I know it's going to be okay, because God, you know, and, this, and, we, and we try to make it better right away. And I just want you to know that God hears your cry, and he is okay with you simply crying out, you're his kid. A parent runs and scoops and holds. It doesn't matter if they say the right words. A parent runs and holds. We have a father who is listening and who knows. And he is watching and he's remembering us. And he is with us. He knows. And if you're feeling alone in your pain, know that he knows. Know that he knows. I'm going to ask Kevin to come up for a few moments and just lead us in a worship song. As we just bless God for those moments when we're in desert, when we aren't sure where we're at, where we don't know what's coming next, can we still find ourselves in those moments as a place where we can still call out, 
cry out and just trust that he knows.
we wait for rescue. God, help us to know that you know. And thank you for being a Lord that hears, that remembers, that sees, and that knows. May we continue to experience your grace and your love on high mountains and in dark valleys. And may we offer that up to others.